I feel like we're really on the precipice of uh, you know some major growth as this idea of investment crowdfunding for infrastructure starts to take hold both in the industry side and with the investor side. Brian Ross has a simple vision, and it's this. The ordinary people should be able to directly own a share in major infrastructure projects. And that vision has led him to spend several years developing InfraShares, a crowdfunding platform for infrastructure. Brian has a background in construction management and civil engineering. He also served in the US Army Corps of Engineers in Afghanistan. And he explains how this helped shape his views on the importance of infrastructure in people's lives. Did one tour in Afghanistan as a platoon leader for an engineering unit, built bridges and roads in Afghanistan that, uh, you know, got blown up a lot by the Taliban and we'd go back out and build them again. But the experience in uh, Afghanistan specifically really showed me the importance of infrastructure, really drove it home uh, for me. You know, I always knew that infrastructure is, you know, plays a critical role in the fabric of society in terms of security and economic development and growth. Uh, so it's, it's critical in the developed world, but, you know, also in the developing world. So anyway, when I got back, when I got out of the army, I used the GI Bill to do an MBA. Uh, And while I was doing my MBA, I got really uh, involved in project funding and finance. So kind of transitioned away from uh, managing projects in the field to the development side of projects and the funding and financing side. And I was actually working for a small private equity fund uh, while I was doing the MBA, uh, working on a water, wastewater uh, P3 in Southern California. And, uh, you know, I, I saw that the institutional investors were making great returns on these deals. Uh, meanwhile, the people in the community uh, didn't really have access to, to invest. And these are good deals, right? And in parallel, I had some peers in the MBA program who were working on investment crowdfunding sites for commercial real estate. And at the time, the, the legislation in the U.S. that allowed for this idea of debt and equity crowdfunding had just been implemented and the commercial real estate space was jumping on. It, you know, uh, very quickly, several platforms popped up and they were right away doing billions of dollars in, in uh, debt and equity financing for everything from house flips to high rise condos in, in, um, in Manhattan. And for me, the light bulb moment was we've got increasing use of private investment to fund infrastructure in the in the US you know it's been it's more mainstream in in the UK and in Europe and Australia and the, uh, the other commonwealth countries but in the in the US it was you know that idea of p3 and private investment in infrastructure was kind of uh, and still is kind of growing so you've got that trend of of increasing private investment in infrastructure and then you've got this other trend of individual investors wanting to have a connection with the the investments that they make um, and wanting to have, you know, feel a sense of impact and connection and have that nexus with, with investments and not just putting their money into a fund or into, uh, you know, um, um, an ETF and, and not having that connection, people wanting more control over exactly where, where their money is going. And then enter the investment crowdfunding regulations, which took this idea of donation crowdfunding that had been around for a while for sites like Kickstarter and Indiegogo and, and then allowed for or the issuance of securities instead of just so now you can aggregate a, a, a broad base of individual small investments, aggregate them into large sums of capital. Commercial real estate's doing it. My thought was why why it's a perfect fit for infrastructure. Perfect for all the reasons that it's a good fit for commercial real estate. It makes even more sense for infrastructure because you 
connect the end users of the project with the finance and keep some of those returns in the community that's going to benefit from it. You get transparency, you get social equity, you get economic development, um, you get positive political optics. You know, in the U.S. still, uh, the one of the primary risks for, for P3s is always this, you know, this idea of the the vocal minority um, being opposed to a to a project for whatever reason, and the projects become political football. So one administration is for it, and then the next administration is against it, just because the last administration was for it. So if you're able to get the community involved on a on a large scale, it's going to mitigate some of those political risks around P3. So that was kind of the the light bulb moment, um, and I, I kind of quickly sketched together a uh, you know the concept. Um, and entered into a, a pitch competition at Stanford University because I had done a master's in civil engineering at Stanford. And as part of that pitch competition, they connected me with people in the P3 space in the U.S. to give some feedback on the idea. And one of those people was uh, Morteza Faragian, who is now the at the time was the P3 director for the Virginia Department of Transportation. And he was like, yes, I've had some ideas, uh, similar ideas along these lines. I think it could really benefit. Um, let's work together. Let's collaborate. So we worked on that pitch pitch deck that turned into re- actually writing a, a research paper for tr- uh, the Transportation Research Board, uh, which we presented at the annual TRB. TRB is a you know a major uh, research academic uh, uh, group in the U.S. focused on the transportation sector. Um, and we presented it at the TRB meeting, got a lot of positive feedback, a lot of, lot of interest. So then we said, Hey, maybe this is a viable business idea. And then we started down the path of, uh, we put some money in, we, we, um, you know, built out the, the platform, we built out the technology. Uh, and then what took a long time was actually going through the regulatory process of getting approved by SEC and FINRA as what's called a, a funding portal in the U.S. And so, so, um, you know, each country has their own, uh, regulatory framework, but in the U.S., you have to go through this process of getting approved as a as a funding portal. So we took that took about a year and a half up until late 2019, and then 2019 we tried we started ramping up. We did some uh, small offerings for accredited investors only, which are more the traditional raises. And then the pandemic hit in 2020. Things kind of slowed down. We we tread water a little bit for a while, but now in 2021 there was some some changes to the rules, and now we're ramping up quickly. We're getting a lot more interest from from issuers and investors, um, and so we're bringing more offerings to the platform and growing our investor base. That being said, we're still rel- relatively small, but I, I feel like we're really on the precipice of uh, you know some major growth as this idea of investment crowdfunding for infrastructure. Uh, starts to take hold both in the uh, uh, in the industry side and and with the the, the uh, investor side. Thanks, Brian. So much in there that we can dive into. You and I have been speaking for a couple of years now, and I feel like I've been following your story. And so it's really exciting to see you get to this stage with now having the necessary regulatory approvals and starting to really see some traction on the platform. Tell me more about the kinds of projects you're seeing and what you've been learning about what makes a project a good fit for crowdfunding. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we've, we've been learning a lot. So, you know, originally we thought there was there was three primary use cases. One is uh, raise a small, relatively small uh, tranche of capital for a big high profile P3, you know, maybe $5 million of a, a billion dollar project, something, something small, but something that would at least bring 
bring some positive optics to the project, get people in the community invested to a degree, not going to replace traditional capital, not going to re- replace Canadian pension funds and, and private equity funds and, you know, Australian and Spanish, um, sp- sponsor equity, but you get a slice in there. And so that, that we think that's where the uh, big opportunity is. We've, we've, you know, had a lot of discussions with uh, P3 developers and public agencies, public agency sponsors, and they, uh, they always say, this is a brilliant idea. Let us know when somebody else does it first. And, you know, <laughs> nobody wants to be the first one. That use case we're, we're kind of working on. And, you know, the developers, they're interested, but they, you know, these pursuits are so hope, high, so high profile and so expensive uh, and risky that they don't, they're, they're hesitant to and uh, bring something new in when there's not some explicit uh, explicit guidance from the the public agency sponsor. So we're we're working on that use case, but where where we've gotten a lot of interest so far is smaller developers, smaller projects that need a fifty thousand, hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand to progress a project from kind of the concept stage, do some conceptual engineering, do some um, development work, environmental permitting, that kind of thing, to progress a project to the point where then they can go back and, and try and raise more institutional capital. So kind of that almost venture stage investment in a in a infrastructure uh, project is where we've gotten a lot of interest as well is on the infrastructure startup side. So on the platform right now, the, the projects that are getting the most interest, we've got three projects raising capital. Two are two small hydro projects. One's, one's a 70,000 equity offering and the other is 110,000 uh, debt offering. And those are small hydro projects in the, in the eastern uh, and northeastern U.S. They're, they're straightforward. The developer has a strong track record. They're operating assets and the developer basically just wants to, to raise the capital to go either acquire the asset or make some capital improvements to drive efficiencies, which is going to generate the return on investment. Those two projects have gotten a lot of interest because they're relatively straightforward. They're smaller amounts. They're easy to digest uh, from the investor's standpoint. They're, they're, they're relatively uh, simple and straightforward. And those those projects are getting a lot of interest. Um, the other project that we have is a water wastewater uh, P3 in Texas. And that project's a little more uh, complex. The technology is more uh, complex or new, I should say. The the relationship between the sponsor and the, the developer is um, not as, you know, they have they have some MOUs in place, but the, the project really depends on the developer raising the capital. So in that sense, it's a little uh, harder for the investor to to see the path to, to returns, and so we've had to spend having to spend more time, kind of you know, ref- refining the the pitch and explaining and answering questions because it's just more complex. So in that sense, what we've seen is where the real uh, opportunity is in projects that are more straightforward. When you're dealing with re- retail investors and individual investors, it's easier for them to to understand the the more straightforward project. That being said, we see this as a huge opportunity because infrastructure as an asset class is relatively new to the retail investor. And so we think that there's a, a big hurdle for us to help investors understand these assets and these investments and the risks and the and the potential returns and the things they should consider. So that's kind of our big next uh, focus is is making InfraShares a platform where investors can come and understand infrastructure as an asset class. Um, people generally understand commercial real estate; they understand uh, you know stocks and bonds, but infrastructure is new. So we're, we're we have 
we're putting a lot of focus now on the educational aspect of of explaining how to evaluate infrastructure investments as as an asset class. And I'm I'm guessing that education piece is no small task. I can imagine that even just the timelines on infrastructure projects might be a challenge for for non-specialist retail investors to get their heads around. How do you deal with that? Yeah, uh, it, that has been a challenge because uh, you know. It's this tension between uh, trying to make infrastructure, you know, I, I don't know if sexy is the right word, but but make it more appealing to the retail investor. And when you have uh, investment horizons of 5, 10, 15, you know, 20 years, that's tough. So we we really try and stress the idea that investment in infrastructure is a is you know requires some patience and it's it's not for everyone it's not for every for portfolio but for the right portfolio it, infrastructure can offer you know long term stable returns it can offer uh, inflation a uh, hedge against inflation um, um, and it's uncorrelated with the broader equities market generally so infrastructure you shouldn't be putting you know, definitely not all your uh, investment in infrastructure but it should occupy you know a small uh, slice of your overall overall portfolio and it can add a lot of benefits so that is a challenge but we were really uh, stressing this idea of investment in infrastructure can generate positive uh, benefits for your portfolio and and you know returns but it's an impact investment as well you're going to benefit uh, communities in terms of better water quality uh, more sustainable wastewater treatment better commute uh, you know access to broadband etc cetera, etc cetera. so the, the the impact the the social return of infrastructure is higher than other assets that that you can invest in and so we really try and stress this idea of do your due diligence understand the, the asset class understand the offering but at the same time make your investment decision with an eye towards the the impact that the investment's going to make so tell me more about the capital structure of these projects. How much does the crowdfunding portion make up of the total capital requirement? Typical breakout is the crowdfunded portion is, you know, approximately a third of the overall need and that's that's good right now because um what that does is it shows to the to, to the crowdfunding investor, the the retail investor, that there's you know other equity or debt coming into the project and so you know there's a sense that the the retail investor investor is following some some other investment. So, um, you know, the idea that there's kind of a lead and the crowdfunding, uh, crowdfunded investors are kind of tagging along with, with uh, some uh, other investment that's already come in. And, and for the retail investors, what, what kind of ticket size are you seeing? Is there, is there a minimum? What kind of investment amounts are you seeing on the platform? So uh, it, it it varies by offering. So it ranges. the 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 two small hydro projects minimum investment is a thousand dollars. The water wastewater project minimum investment is five hundred dollars. Um, but we also have some offerings uh, for some uh, uh, workforce housing projects where the developer wants uh, twenty five thousand uh, minimum. So the the minimum investment amount ranges from offering to offering. But we as a platform uh, try and recommend keep it as as little as possible to to maximize the the size of the demographic that that you can access and as a platform we can go down to five hundred dollars per uh per per investor and so uh in terms of what the average investment has been it's been uh uh, I, th I think the average investment is about 
uh, about $5,000 because we still have uh, a pretty good network of uh, accredited investors who are looking to write larger checks. But at the same time, we have a lot of individual investors, just people in the community of these projects that want to invest $500 or $1,000. So uh, the average has been in that range between 5,000 and, and 7,000. And what about the demographics of the investors? How, how, what proportion are people local to the project who are supportive of that project in their area? It's a mix. I'd say it's about 50-50 split between people in the community that support the project because, um, because they're in the community, they understand the, the local economics, they want to support the project uh, because it'll help them. And, and, and then the other 50% is, you know, just people who are generally interested in trans transformative infrastructure projects that are generally interested in infrastructure as an asset class that are generally interested in finding uh, alternative investment uh, opportunities. And what about international investors? Are you seeing any interest from outside the U.S.? From the U.K. primarily, we've we've had a lot of traction, um, a little bit from Canada, not so much yet from from other parts of the world, um, I, and that's I think largely because Canada and the UK have a pretty robust um, you know investment crowdfunding framework in place, so the investors are more uh, uh, kind of you know better understand the the platforms and how it works, and frankly are are more familiar with infrastructure as a as an asset class. But our, our vision is to be a global marketplace for investment infrastructure opportunities. Uh, it, although we operate in the U.S. under U.S. regulations, anyone uh, in the world can invest. Non-U.S. Uh, can invest as well. We just have to run a, a KYC AML check on all investors. They have to upload their their ID, some proof of uh, uh, ID, but they, they can invest as well. And so one thing I want to ask you about was the kind of classic platform business problem. You need the projects to attract the investors and you need the investors to attract the projects. How have you addressed that issue? Yeah, yeah. And that is the primary challenge. If we had more uh, offerings, we could attract more investors. If we had more investors, we could attract more offerings. So right now, what what we're trying to do is we, we don't we don't see a way with more funding to, uh, you know, address that challenge. We think it's just organically growing the platform incrementally, bringing on good offerings, which will incrementally bring on more investors, which will inc incrementally allow us to convince more more offers. So we see it as kind of a long, uh, long-term incremental growth. Uh, we're relying a lot on word of mouth by the by the investors um, and them, the investors sharing with their investor network. You know, we that's for a crowdfunding platform, that network effect of investors sharing with investors sharing with investors is is critical. And when investors come on on the platform, they can ask questions to the to the sponsor and then they can share that question within their network. They can share the answers. So when new investors come on, they see all the questions and answers that have been posted. So there's this idea of, you know, crowdfunded due diligence. Um, but yeah, it's it's just going to be an incremental uh, approach to, to growth. And what about projects outside the US, Brian? Can InfraStears finance international projects? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's a couple of aspects to that. First is in the US, the regulation crowdfunding that we operate under can only be used by US entities. However, if a, if a, uh, development project in Egypt or or Thailand or somewhere else um, has a U.S. entity that that U.S. entity can be used to raise the capital, and then there's no restriction on you know on geographically where the the money gets gets used, but 
but there, do, there does have to be a U.S. entity that actually is issuing the securities. So that that opens up the door to do projects all over the world. Uh, number one, number two, um, you know, the the regulatory framework is rapidly evolving uh, around the rest of the world, and there's opportunity for for InfraShares to go through the process of getting, um, you know, approved in in different parts of the world, in the U- EU, in the UK, um, and then starting to, um, uh, you know be a platform, a localized platform in those specific uh, regions. But um, right now there's, there's no limit on the reach of, of InfraShares. Um, so we're, we're looking at international offerings as well. We're talking to a couple of developers in uh, Brazil specifically that are very interested in this idea. So having heard from Brian the full backstory on InfraShares, I was very keen to speak to a project developer who's listing on the site. And that's coming up in the next episode when we're going to speak to the developer of an innovative wastewater treatment project in Texas who's currently raising on the InfraShares platform. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you back next time for part two. The project is a production of the Project Finance Institute. Find out more at projectfinanceinstitute.com. Today's episode was presented by Kenny Whitler-Jones and edited and mixed by Bren Russell.